With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to History of College Football Podcast. I am Jay Abramson, and I will take you down a gridiron memory lane. The national champions, the teams, the rivalries, their conferences, the Heisman winners, the rankings. Today, we are lucky to have a very special guest, Mr. Mike McCoy, sportscaster and host of the radio show, The Michael McCoy Show, found at Slam Radio XM or on Twitter at Twitter handle at UM underscore radio, R-A-D-I-O underscore M-I-C at U-M underscore radio underscore M-I-C. He is here to talk Canes football today. Mike, your podcast is dedicated to discussing the Miami Hurricanes, and I am honored to have you as my guest. Earlier this month, you had me as a guest on your wonderful radio talk show, and you are completely engaging. So begin, just tell me about your radio show. Well, first of all, Jay, thank you very, very much for having me on your podcast. I'm very excited because you put out tremendous, tremendous content and any historian uh, or college football fan that loves the history of the sport, um, you, 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 you cover it all. So thank you for that. But um, about the show, it's, it's pretty much uh, the latest and greatest of what's been going on in the past week. Uh, in the world of sports, I cover pretty much any significant storyline. Um, I don't just focus on Miami Hurricanes football since it is a national show. I try to not to put it, uh, put myself in a box. So there's a lot of NBA talk, a lot of NFL talk, uh, of course, college football talk. I'm not that big into baseball, so it's ma- mainly those three, most those three topics. And whenever there's a big time fight, like how we saw Roy Jones and Mike Tyson, I talk about things of that nature as well. Very good. How did you first decide to create your radio show, Mike? I, well, when I started at UM, uh, I automatically jumped aboard WVUM, which is the school radio station. And so it's ran by the students. Everything in that station is run by the students. And so um, we do the school broadcasts for uh, on the radio for football, basketball, so on and so forth. So I started there doing that. And then I, when I realized that we have an opportunity to do our weekly shows, if we wanted to, um, I learned how to get behind the switchboard and all of that stuff and the soundboard. And I started hurricane warning on campus. And that went on for three years, every Sunday morning. And so, uh, once COVID started, we were not allowed to be in the studio anymore and everything had to go remote. But around August of this year, a gentleman by the name of Larry Million, who was on my show years ago, he heard one of my shows and he offered me if I wanted to go on Sirius XM through Slam Radio. And I said, absolutely. So unfortunately I couldn't do both because it is a lot doing radio shows remotely because then you got to edit it and all of that. So I had to drop the hurricane warning on campus and now I'm just solely focused on uh, the Michael McCoy show. Well, you put out great content. I'm an avid listener. Love your guests. And, and in you. part, your radio show is, is dedicated to discussing the Miami Hurricanes. 
um, we at our podcast, we dedicate a podcast to the football history of a particular school. And back on episode 25, we discussed the college football history of the Miami Hurricanes. So I'm very interested in getting your take on a number of items surrounding hurricane football. And I'll start with the coaches. First, the slew of iconic gridiron coaches that coached at Miami reads in part like a who's who of coaching legends since mm -hmm. 1979. Howie Schnellenberger, Larry Coker, Dennis Erickson, and uh, Jimmy Johnson. Now, in my best coach segment of our podcast, we discussed and compared each of the coast coaches, and we gave the nod to Jimmy Johnson. So I have a couple of questions for you here. Uh, first, how would you compare them? Comparing them, um, I mean, they're all different in their own like and similar, I'm sorry, in their own way, similar in the sense that they had like the same vision and that vision was started by Howard. Uh, he's like the godfather, everybody knows him. And if there was ever a statue on campus for a football coach at the University of Miami, it would be him. Um, just like uh, the baseball team has one in front of Mark Light Stadium. But uh, Howard, Howard Stellenberger started all, he had a vision and he clearly, he even said he wanted the University of Miami to be that brand to be more or as recognizable as IBM at the time. And that was a famous quote of his. And so he figured, you know, uh, we walked, there's enough talent locally to compete with the big dogs nationally, you know, wall off Dade, Broward, Palm Beach counties, and we'll be okay. That's exactly what he did. And so um, he was the visionary. He was the, the, you know, the engine behind the machine that started that, that monster in 1983. So then when Jimmy, when he left you know it was a sad sad deal at that point you know he left for the cfl to try to be a, a pro coach when jimmy came along uh it kind of wasn't as well received by the players as you know most thought especially especially when you think about the success that jimmy had because they were thinking well who's this guy you know we we don't know who he is he we don't know him <laughs> and so jimmy took it to another level in terms of the kind of attitude that the, that the Miami players had. Everybody is familiar with that four-letter word, swag, and Miami let them play. I'm sorry, not Miami. Jimmy let them play. Jimmy let them play, and he said, you know what? Don't worry about the outside noise. As long as you guys win, I'll handle the media. It's okay. Just win. Be you, and let the. I'll take care of the rest. And then so when Dennis came along, I mean, I, I hate to put it this way. He kind of he rode out what Jimmy had. And um, not to say that he wasn't innovative because he was, he implemented the single back offense. And when that came about, the players were like, uh, uh, no, you know, it wasn't a popular thing among the players, but they said, you know what, fine, go ahead and do that, but you better not touch the defense. So Dennis let the defense do their thing, but he implemented that one back offense. And then, uh, you know, we saw Gino Toretto win a Heisman trophy because of it, you know, airing it out. But, uh, they were comparable in the sense that they all had, a, Jimmy had a vision. He wanted to get, let the guys be there, be themselves. Dennis wrote it out, but he also had a vision for that offense to be explosive. And it was, it's exactly what it was. Lamar Thomas, Gino Toretta, all those guys. And then uh, the very first visionary was Howard Snellenberger. So that's, that's, that's how they're comparable. Wow. Great insight. Fantastic. So, so, so you mentioned Howard Schnellenberger referenced him as, as the godfather, deservingly mm -hmm. so, deservingly so. What, what is your take on this generation's awareness of Howard Schnellenberger's impact on the Kane program? You know, it's, uh, it's, it's disappointing to say. 
I was watching an interview because last season when Greg Rousseau, the defensive end who decided to opt out this season because he had a tremendous uh, uh, season last year in terms of sacks. I think he was only behind um, Ohio State's, uh, I can't remember his, his name. It was the second pick in the draft. He's not with the Redskins. Forgive me for forgetting his name. Chase Smith, I think his name is. I'm sorry. But in any event, um, he started getting a lot of national attention. Uh, Greg Rousseau and so they started asking him about guys in Miami's program like former players and they asked them you know specifically about someone that you know was a sack master and he didn't know who this particular player was and it was uh I believe it was I think it was they were asking him about Greg Mark or Jerome Brown one of the defensive linemen that played in the 80s but to me, if you're going, and I'm not, and I'm not just talking about the University of Miami. I'm talking about any college football program, basketball program. If you're going to be an athlete for that team, I think you should know the history. So, just going off of that, how Greg Rousseau really couldn't identify who the player was that they're adding. It played pretty much the same position. I'm not so sure that today's players are as well versed as they should be when it comes to Miami's history. And again, I'm only, it's a small sample size that I'm giving you, but I'm going off of the only thing that I, that I heard about that Greg Rousseau, uh, you know, he, he wasn't aware of one of the greats at UM, you know, guys that played his own position. So um, everybody, every fan you talk to that's a University of Miami fan is aware of that because, I mean, how could you not be? But uh, I, I'm not sure that the players themselves are, are as much as the fans. Wow. Again, great, great insight. So would this hold for the current generation with their views of the other uh, hurricane coaches that follow Coach Nellenberger? I'm sorry, can you can you repeat that? Oh, sure. Would this hold as well with the current generation? Would they be probably uh, maybe not as familiar as, as as we would like of the following coaches? I'm I'm I would venture to say, yeah, I mean, Manny Diaz, the current coach, he admittedly and he's not afraid to say it. He was a fan first. He tell, He's always open about how he would go to watch games with his father at the Orange Bowl as a child. And it's just so funny that he graduated from FSU. He is a null. But uh, he, he was a fan first. And so um, I think that with knowing who Miami's coach is now, how he knows about the history of the program, I would hope and think that he's trying to let these guys know about what their past is. I mean, they, they know to an extent, okay, what Miami represents, what Miami's impact was on college football, how they changed the sport in so many ways. Uh, maybe not so much individual players. They, they are aware of some coaches, you know, maybe the most recent, not the most recent, but the last one to win a national champion, uh, Larry Coker. But that was, that was 2000, 2001, and right. these guys were – you know, just being born. <laughs> so um, I would like to think so, but I, I can't say it was with, with as much certainty as I'd like. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Uh, what coaches we're talking about goes back to their parents' generation, doesn't it? Yeah. How about the teams? Um, maybe we'll move on to the next best hurricane team. And, and, and in our podcast, we gave the nod to the 1987 team, 12 and 0. But to be honest, we had a difficult time justifying why they would be rated over the 2001 team. In the past decade, if we just look at that, in your estimation, which hurricane team would you consider the best? In the past decade, so from 2010 to 2020, 
Um, twenty seventeen, that was that was a roller coaster season. Miami, you know, had ten wins for the first time in a long time, and so uh, they got off to a hard start. That team was was uh, easily, easily, easily known for its defense. Okay, their offense wasn't uh, wasn't dominant. It got the job done, but you know that was the birth of the turnover chain, you know, 2017. And now we're in year four of the turnover chain. There's been four different editions of that. And then that obviously took college football by storm because everybody had their own version of their turnover chain or turnover backpack or some celebration, some form of celebration for a turnover or a touchdown. So 2017 was a big year. Um, That's probably the best team in 20 years, but this season isn't over yet. Miami has one loss on the season. They lost to one of the best teams in the country in Clemson on the road. And although Miami's been squeaking them by, uh, they are eight and one right now. Uh, They got a game coming up against UNC this weekend. If things go the way they're supposed to and should, they'll probably have a bid for the Orange Bowl right here in Miami against the hated Gators from up north. So um, the season's not over yet. Uh, if you were to ask me this, say a month from now, and Miami were to win out, I would easily say 2020. But right now, I'm going to go ahead and say it's 2017, which was year two of Mark Richt. Um, again, a year known for its defense. And although it didn't end the way Miami fans wanted it to with the victory in the Orange Bowl over Wisconsin, that's probably the year that stands out the most in the, in the last decade. Right, right. If those of you listening, we're recording this on December 8th. You'll have a little bit of foresight that we don't have when you're hearing it. Um do you have a favorite hurricane team? Wow, uh, I do. It's it's gonna have to be the uh, national championship team in two thousand one. But I'll tell you what, it's 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 almost like one A and one B because the year before, the year prior in two thousand, when um, I mean, did not play in the national championship game and it probably should have. You know, Miami beats number one uh, FSU in an iconic game that I was at in the Orange Bowl, 28 to 27. Uh, They beat the Heisman winning trophy, Chris Winkie. Uh, They go on to beat Virginia Tech and Michael Vick. They squeak one out. Uh, I'm sorry, no, that's that's, that's the the championship winning team. But the year prior that I was, I I got them confused. The year prior, that team didn't go to the national championship game. Um, And they probably should have. They end up beating the Gators in the, in the Sugar Bowl, but that team had Santana Moss, Dan Morgan, uh, Ed Reed was still on that team, uh, James Jackson, a good running back, uh, a local guy, and so that team is is really close. But I, I'm gonna have to go with the national championship team because it was just so exciting to watch on both sides of the ball, explosive offensively. That team scored. I think they, when I looked it up, I think they could have won about six games or maybe five games off defensive touchdowns alone. That team was everything. Yeah, they, they were phenomenal. One of the best teams of all time. Uh, the games themselves, I have a few questions for you here. If you had to pick, pick the three, the three best Miami Hurricane football games you've ever witnessed in person or on TV, just the three best that, that, that you saw, what would they be? I have three. And they, this was hard because when you sent me the list of questions, I mean, I've I've been to some heartbreakings. I'm sorry, some heartbreakers, but I've also been to some really, really exciting wins. So the one that I just referenced, uh, the the comeback where Kenny Dorsey 
you know, put himself on a national scene as a sophomore at home. Miami, I forget what ranking they were, but Florida State was absolutely number one. That game felt like it was five hours long. An October game felt like it was July. The Orange Bowl after the clock struck zero was rowdy 30 minutes after the game. Nobody was leaving. Uh, I was one of those people that I'm getting goosebumps right now just thinking about it. Uh, Dorsey to Shockey to, to, to take the lead at the end, and then Miami uh, has to play defense one more time. FSU marches, and then, you know, they miss it, and that's a wide right three. And I just I'm, – I'm honestly getting goosebumps thinking about it. That game was amazing. Um, there was a revenge game. The only loss that Miami had in 2000 that uh, prevented them from playing in a national championship game, which would have been in Miami against Oklahoma, but FSU ended up going to, in, in that game. Uh, Miami hosted Washington because the year before they went up to Washington and they lost Marcus Tuiasosopo, good college quarterback, and you know they beat Miami. That was Miami's only loss that season, that season. But when Washington came down on a Saturday night to the Orange Bowl, it was a bloodbath. It yeah. was not even funny. I think the final score was something along the lines of 60-something to Washington didn't even get into the, the double digits. And they were bloodthirsty. That crowd was raucous. It was it was amazing. And then there was another one. There was a comeback game. I want to say it was in 2003 or four. Devin Hester uh, introduced himself to the nation. And he told him, he told Coach Coker, uh, Coach Coker kept asking him, what are you going to do when you get your hands on, on, on the ball? He said, I'm taking it to the house the first time I get my hands on a kickoff, Coach. And I remember Coach Coker saying, well, I would have been satisfied with you saying that you weren't going to muff the kick. <laughs> but he said he was going to take it to the house. The very first time that Devin Hester touched uh, the ball, he, he took it back to the house. And that was how that game started. Miami comes back after trailing by, I want to say, Three touchdowns. They come back to beat the hated Gators, 38 to 33. Brock Berlin, uh, former Gator, wins that game. Frank Gore with a winning touchdown, and that game was—I wasn't at that game, but those three right there are probably the best three games that I've experienced as a fan. Oh, that's great. Now, now, now I hate to get you in trouble with your own fan base. But <laughs> you have a least favorite Kane game. Oh man. There was a game that I went, I will never forget it because uh, it almost made me, I'm going to give you two of them if you don't mind. Please. Okay. So this one did make me cry. I believe it was 1997. You know, we were in the middle of sanctions. Uh, Ryan Clement is Miami's quarterback and we travel up to Dope Campbell Stadium and forgive me I can't rem if I can't remember what uh, FSU's ranking was at the time, but they were up there. And they had beaten us a couple times in a row, if I'm not mistaken. Miami gets shut out 47 to nothing. And I cried because I thought it was over. I thought Miami football was done. I thought that there was no coming back from that and that it was just done, that Miami was going to be just another program, another five, six win program for the rest of my life. And I remember that because, like I said, I cried. I cried for a long time. I didn't want to come out of my room for a couple of hours. And um, another game that I that I, it's just hard to get over was another game that I was at. Uh, Miami was number eight. They host the number two Penn State Nittany Lions Saturday, a rainy, cloudy, nasty, wet Saturday at the yes. Orange Bowl. LeVar Arrington comes down. Uh, and that defense, that Joe Paterno defense led by Arrington, I think Brandon Short was one of their linebackers as well. I forget who their uh, who their quarterback was, but one name I'll never forget on that offense is Chaffee Fields. 
why I'll never forget that name is because he caught the game-winning touchdown pass over Mike Rumpf, who was falling down the sidelines trying to keep up with him because it was wet, and Ed Reed couldn't get over inside in time to stop that play. And uh, I'll never forget that because my Niners, I'm a Niners fan, they ended up drafting him. So you go from hating him <laughs> to loving him. But those two games, it was a heartbreaking game because Miami had that game one, and they, they just couldn't pull it off at the end. And Penn State was ranked number two coming down, coming down. So it would have been a big victory, but that was – they literally let that one slip out of their hands and it hurt. I fully understand where you're coming from. I'm not going to mention uh, a, a flag that was thrown in a national championship game <laughs> against Ohio State. Um, I, I, I mentioned it, but I'm not going to talk about it. I understand that as well. It's, it's hilarious. Uh, I, I've never been to a Miami-Florida State game. It's on my mm-hmm. bucket list. Can you speak to what it's like to be present for that game? How deep the emotions actually run between the two schools? You know, and here go the goosebumps again. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. Like, I feel them. So, unfortunately, and I wish I have, uh, I've, there, I've only been able to visit uh, two locations to watch college football games. And uh, the only other location has been in Orlando for a bowl game. But uh, all every other college football game I've ever been to has been either at Hard Rock Stadium right now or the Orange Bowl before they tore them they tore her down and so I wish I could have experienced or wish I can I will eventually go to Doak Campbell Stadium so I can get the real college environment feel of it because in Miami I'm not going to make any bones about it it's not a college town we know that it's a big city environment but that does not take away from the experience of a Miami FSU tailgates tailgates are amazing down here and then so the week leading up to a Miami FSU game it's been kind of different in the past couple of years because either Miami's been down and FSU's been up or right now Miami's up and FSU's down. So it's not where it was in the 90s and the early 2000s where both teams were going at it and, you know, these games had national championship implications. But uh, even now, even now, it's 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 uh, it's intense because especially now with social media, you know, there's banter back and forth and it's fun. But uh the game, the actual game environment, it's awesome because as much as I hate to admit it, that Tomahawk war chant, it sounds cool. It sounds really, really cool. Like I said, I've never been to Doak Campbell Stadium, but um, everyone tells me that when you see everybody doing it in unison, you know, it's it's a sight to see. So the experience is awesome. Uh, it, it feels like, I don't know if you've ever had this feeling that every time that one of your teams is playing in a really, really big game, you're just nervous. And I remember the game where uh, Greg Jones was running all over. He was what, like a 6'2", 250-pound running back, it seemed like. He ran for, I believe it was 189 yards. It felt like 5,000 yards because uh-huh. every carry was a six-yard pop. And I think that was 2001 when when, when they missed a wide, uh, a wide left, actually. But um, it seemed like uh, everything was going wrong for Miami when everything was going right for FSU. But even this year, Miami beats FSU 52, I think, to seven it was. Uh, you 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 just want to make sure you win that game because there's nothing worse than going a whole year that the other side gets to have those bragging rights. But uh, it's intense, man. Before the game, during the game, and after the game, it's a lot of fun. And uh, the best thing I could compare it to, I guess, if I had to make a comparison, was uh, just, just really making sure you don't get – you don't lose a fight to your little brother because it would be the worst because – <laughs> that, that that's what I could compare it to. <laughs> now, 
Now, you and I spoke a couple of months back, and I, I seem to remember you mentioning you you had been to the old Orange Bowl. Is, mm-hmm. is that correct? Yes, Tell sir. me what that's like to, to go to the game at the old Orange Bowl. Very unique. Day and, game, um, night game? Absolutely. No, I'll give you both examples. So um, this was when this was when 12 o'clock games didn't have I don't want to use the word stigma, but uh, didn't have the feel that they have now. Because now a 12 o'clock game, unless it's the Red River rivalry, because that game is still a noon kickoff, if I'm not mistaken. 12 o'clock games was like, oh, okay, it's not prime time, no big deal. Look at this weekend coming up, Ohio State, Michigan. That's a 12 o'clock game. If it was, if both teams were top 10, that would be that would be the eight o'clock game, the prime time kickoff. But uh, that Miami FSU game when Dorsey came back and hit Shockey, that was a noon game, and sweltering heat at the orange bowl let me tell you the, the old lady what we like to call her down here in miami uh didn't have a replay board okay mm-hmm. she just had a scoreboard and it was a horseshoe type stadium so there was the east end of the stadium was open you had a beautiful view of the city of miami and so uh it was like bleacher style seating you know you loved it and when that place was rocking ask lou holtz he means it literally and figuratively rocking. Uh, I think it was that 88 game that they came down, uh, a game that I wasn't at, I was too young. But that uh, late 80s, uh, he said that he would look up and he literally saw the stands swaying and, you know, they were scared. And, you know, Miami, when Miami fans get rowdy, you know, we show up to an event, it, it, it gets intimidating. And the thing about that stadium is that there was a true home field advantage because the fans, the stands were that close to the sidelines. They were very, very close. Uh, when you scored a touchdown in the West end zone, you know, if, if somebody's coming in 100 miles an hour trying to catch a, catch a 50-yard pass, you don't have that much room to, to, to recover, to recover and, you know, before you hit maybe, say, the, the, the wall where the stands are. So that's how close the, 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 the stands are. And that place, it gets deafening. It gets really, really loud even though it was a stadium with no really closed in type of uh, structure, it was great. It was old. It was rustic. It was leaky. It smelled, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, it was great. I mean, it hosted some great Super Bowls, some great college football games, uh, wrestling events, even concerts. And it's just something that I hate that they tore it down. Uh I do too. The old lady. I really like that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Great reference. Uh, Switching slightly now, on January 2nd, 1984, Miami defeated Nebraska 31 to 30 as Tom Osborne's two-point conversion fell short. And probably no other play other than the Zabruder film has been repeated more often than that one. In many ways, it really changed the landscape of college football. Now for you, what was the most stunning Miami upset that you ever watched? I hate to keep referencing it. But uh, I mean, it's it, it's hard to say. I, I I I don't want to use the word stunning, but I really can't think of any other adjective right now. But again, when that Chris Winkie and that number one ranked FSU team came down to Miami, uh, that was a that was a game that I, I'm gonna go ahead and say it. I I forgot how old I was at that time, but I had my doubts going into the game. So. Yes, I was surprised that Miami won, but not really because I knew that they they could have won. And that was a team that was just on a mission. And so uh, it was great because it was in person. FSC was loaded. 
there was NFL talent all over the field on both sides of the ball, offense and defense. Uh, you know, obviously the coaches, they were on the sidelines. Mark Rick was on, you know, was a coordinator for FSU that year. Uh, obviously, Bobby Bowden, uh, Butch Davis, we all know how he transformed Miami's program, the coordinators that Miami had at the time. Randy Shannon was a great defensive coordinator. And so uh, that was it, the fact that the, the FSU was number one. OK, that stands out. And uh, the fact that I was there in person to see it. And it was again, it was a great, great, great game, probably the best game I've ever seen in person. Uh, you know, there was a comeback involved. There was hard hits. Uh, Brett Romberg even said at the halftime that at, at the halftime, not even at the end of the game, at halftime, they were they were handing out IVs for mm -hmm. for for because the guys were dehydrated. So it was it was a hard fought game, hard hitting game, and just a lot of fun to think back on now. You are a wealth of knowledge. That is fantastic. <laughs> for you, what was the most memorable hurricane play? I mean, you're talking about obviously a history that goes back to what, 1926. I'm not trying to put you on the spot, right. but just personally, what, what was the most memorable hurricane play for you? It's, it happened in a down year for Miami. It happened on a Halloween night. It happened at Duke. It happened on a night game. And it took about maybe 60 seconds to 90 seconds. We all know that the average college football or average football play lasts, what, four, maybe, maybe five seconds. This play lasted anywhere between, I don't know, 30 to 60 seconds, maybe. And I believe there were nine laterals involved. This is the year that Al Golden got fired from Miami after Miami got embarrassed at home 58 to nothing to Dabo Sweeney's Clemson Tigers. He got fired the day after. And so uh, the interim coach takes over. His name at the moment escapes me. I want to say he's at Tennessee right now. He was the tight ends coach at the time. Uh, Miami goes up to 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 Duke, um, tough game, and Duke takes a lead late. So the kickoff ensues, and there were nine laterals involved, and crazy things happen on Halloween, Jay. This was probably one of the craziest things I've ever seen happen <laughs> on a Halloween uh, when sports uh, is involved. Miami ends up winning that game. And it was a controversial finish because, of course, you got to go to the replay board. And they took a good five to seven minutes looking at that play. And I'm thinking this is going to get overturned. This is going to get overturned. Sure. And I will admit, I have no problem admitting that Mark Walton, the starting running back at the time, his knee was down. His knee was absolutely down on one of the replays. Somehow uh, the football guards didn't catch it. The replay didn't catch it. I don't know, but I certainly did. I'll take the victory because I've seen plenty of games that were, uh, you know, taken out of Miami's grasp. Uh, by, by officials, but um, that has to be the most memorable play or game that I can remember recent, in recent history because Miami won and in a crazy, crazy fashion. Yeah, I know. It's, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, the Cal Stanford, what, they had five laterals. This one had nine and moans that and he was down there too. <laughs> no one called it. So, yeah. Oh, I remember that vividly. Uh, on our podcast, we have a best player segment. And we gave the nod for the best hurricane player to Ray Lewis. Okay. But the choice wasn't really easy. I mean, that's quite an ensemble that's gathered together. I mean, here's just a sampling. And I'll miss a few and I'll apologize ahead of time, but you got quarterbacks, Mini Testaverde, Gino Torietta, Bruni Kozar, Jim Kelly, more from the offense, Michael Irvin. 
Andre Johnson, Santana Moss, Edron James on defense. There's the late Sean Taylor, who's my son's favorite player. Warren mm -hmm. Sapp, Ray Lewis, the late Jerome Brown, and Ed Reed. In your opinion, who is the most memorable or the best, you can pick your slant on this, cane player that you have ever seen play? Mind you, you sent me this email maybe four weeks ago, and I still don't know how to answer it because <laughs> I obviously had time to. I did narrow it down. Now, most memorable cane player for me is easy, and it's not because he's passed on or anything like that, but because of the way that he played the game was – Sean Taylor was born to play football, okay? Not to say that he couldn't be anything else that he wanted to, but that man was born and made and crafted to play football. He is, I remember one night uh, my gym closes, it's a 24-hour gym, and I was like the only one in there. He came in to get a workout, and this was in the offseason. Nobody recognized him. Uh, well, not nobody, because like I said, I was the only one in there. But the worker at the front desk didn't even recognize him. And I'm like, every time I see a celebrity, I don't know if it's the same with you, Jay, but I don't think it's them. I think it's somebody that looks a lot like them, and I psych myself out. So I'm thinking there's no way that's, there's no way that Sean Taylor is at Porky's right now. That was the name of the gym. <laughs> I'm like, there's just no way. It's like 2 in the morning. Like, why would he be here? And then on top of that, he was only there for like 30 minutes. He got a really short work. And then when I saw what he was lifting, it was nothing crazy. Like, I could have lifted it. I'm like, that couldn't have been Sean Taylor. So I went to the front desk. And I'm sorry to get off track here, but I'll, I'll go back. No, <laughs> um, I go to the front desk and I say, can you tell me who just checked in? And he's like, yeah, uh, Sean Taylor. And he sounded really confused. I said, okay, thanks, man. And I couldn't believe it. But uh, I said all that to say this. The man, he looked like a robot. He looked like a Greek god. Mind you, he was in full clothing, wasn't in a gym shirt, wasn't in shorts. He was in jogging pants, sneakers, and a shirt with sleeves that wasn't even fitted. Um, it was a you know, normal-sized shirt. And he was still busting through it, okay? Mm. Um, he, was, he, he, he looked like a transformer. And to see a guy that size run like a deer, hit like a Mack truck, and get up and do it again over and over and over like he was born to do it is, is memorable. Because when you hear guys like Terrell Owens and Chad Johnson say that they were scared to go to the middle because of him, that's not something that wide receivers admit to, okay? Yeah. Um, you know, granted, they did say it after they retired, which is which, – might be a little easier to admit because you definitely don't want to admit that while you're playing in the NFL, but still they said it. Okay. Uh, a guy that I worked with um, coached coach Sean in high school before he transferred to Gulliver prep. He was, he played his high school football at Killian high school, a public school here in Miami. And uh, he was telling me, he was telling me, he, we had to tell him to calm down sometimes like Sean, you're going to hit, you're going to hurt our quarterback can you please tone it down some because we, we got a game coming up and just, just relax. He only knew one speed and that was all the way, 100%. So easily Sean is the most memorable because of the way he played the game, the ferocity, the hits that he put on guys for crying out loud. He went a hundred percent at a kicker in a pro bowl, Jay. <laughs> I mean, that, that tells you all that you need to know about Sean Taylor. So um, he's easily the most the, the most memorable, even though there's a guys on that list like, you know, Devin Hester was a magician back there. Uh, you know, Willis McGahee was amazing in his 26 touchdown scoring season at Miami. Uh, the best player I'm going to have to say. I'm going to have to say it's Ken Dorsey 
because his he he was a wizard in terms of his preparedness. Like he was so smart in in uh, watching film. You know, anybody that knows anything about me football knows that he was a very cerebral quarterback. Had a noodle arm, okay, and even he'll tell you he didn't have the arm strength, you know, to get it past whatever it was, but he got the job done. Was a 100% natural born leader. You should see him on the sideline. He was not afraid to get in anybody's face. And that's why a lot of people respected him, especially his teammates. And everybody knows that, you know, when you're a quarterback, you got to be the leader of the team or, or the quarterback should be the leader of the team. This little skinny kid from California, you know, you wouldn't have put it past him. But he would had no, uh, no, wasn't scared at all of getting in a linebacker's face, Andre Johnson's face, uh, Bryant McKinney's face. And these guys were mountains compared to him. But they they played their butts off for him. Uh, the old line I think allowed like two three sacks throughout the last three the last two seasons while he started at Miami. That's how much they respected and loved and played for him. But Ken Dorsey's the best player because he never made a mistake. Never made his mistake. Was always prepared. And uh, the way he robbed uh, got the guys up to play for him. That has to be respected. And that's what you want from a quarterback, right? Mm-hmm. Then on a personal note, I got to tell my son, Dig, uh, his favorite team was the Washington. They were called the Redskins back then. And his most memorable player, and Mike McCoy's most memorable player is the same person. Yep. Fantastic. Yep. In, in a broader sense, who is the best college football player you've ever seen? I Reggie, guess, Bush. Reggie Bush. Boy, Hands boy. down. Reggie Bush. If, if there was a second place, I probably would put Adrian Peterson. Okay. But... Uh, Reggie Bush and and actually Peter Wark is another one. Peter Wark was very 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 okay. skilled, but Reggie Bush. I mean, the game that sticks out to me um, is when he had like half a thousand yards against Fresno State. Yeah, and I don't know how many touchdowns. Video game, right? I'm sorry. It was like a video game watching him. Absolutely, it's exactly what he was. Yeah. You know, and um, I wish he had that pro career to match his college career. He didn't have a bad pro career at all. Won a Super Bowl with the Saints, was an integral part of that offense, but Reggie Bush easily, without hesitation, is the best college football player I've ever seen. Oh, fully, fully can see that. Absolutely. The mascot. Oh, I love mascots. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever met Sebastian the Ibis? I have. I have. Okay. So um, I was employed at one point at the University of Miami. So I came across him in that sense because uh, the department that I worked in, it was, you know, part of human resources. So whenever they would have like a, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like an orient, there we go, an orientation. He would come in and, you know, welcome, you know, you're now an employee of the University of Miami. But then as a student, of course, you run into Sebastian the Ibis. So <laughs> I have, I've taken pictures with him. And it's funny because they have tryouts, you know, students obviously are, and it's more than one Sebastian. It's, it's like three different Sebastians, because like I said, since they are students and students have different schedules, you got to have different Sebastians for whenever one isn't available. So, um, and it's probably more than just three because there's a female Sebastian, you know, he has his <laughs> wife. And so, <laughs> uh, that's a thing too. So, uh, I have met him. I've taken pictures with him. Funny guy. He'll come up and obviously they don't, talk through the mask but they'll go ahead and take pictures with you uh do poses with you chants with you the c-a-n-e-s chant is always awesome and anybody that's ever been to a cane game to see him uh get the crowd all riled up when he marches on to the to midfield on the u and just kind of you know thrusts his arm back and forth and gets the crowd going that sebastian has a lot of energy 
that's I think it's a requirement that you drink like three Red Bulls before a game because <laughs> I don't understand how he does the thing or she does the things that he or she does during the game. Uh, a lot of energy. It's got to be a lot of fun. But yes, I have met him. That's hilarious. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you, Mr. Mike McCoy. You have been a phenomenal guest. Again, Mr. Mike McCoy is a sportscaster and host of the radio show, The Michael McCoy Show, found at Slam Radio XM or on Twitter at Twitter handle at UM underscore radio, R-A-D-I-O underscore M-I-C. Again, at UM underscore radio underscore M-I-C. Thank you for listening to History of College Football. I am Jay Abramson. Join us every Tuesday and Saturday for a new episode. Thank you, Jerry.